This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. First Half of Part One, Chapter Five Mysticism and Theology. In the last chapter, we tried to establish a distinction between the mystic who tastes supreme experience and the mystical philosopher who cogitates upon the data so obtained. We have now, however, to take account of the fact that often the true mystic is also a mystical philosopher, though there are plenty of mystical philosophers who are not and could never be mystics. Because it is characteristic of the human self to reflect upon its experience, to use its percepts as material for the construction of a concept, most mystics have made or accepted a theory of their own adventures. Thus we have a mystical philosophy or theology, the comment of the intellect on the proceedings of spiritual intuition, running side by side with true or empirical mysticism, classifying its data, criticizing it, explaining it, and translating its vision of the supersensible into symbols which are amenable to dialectic. Such a philosophy is most usually founded upon the formal creed which the individual mystic accepts. It is characteristic of him that in so far as his transcendental activities are healthy, he is generally an acceptor and not a rejecter of such creeds. The view which regards the mystic as a spiritual anarchist receives little support from history, which shows us again and again the great mystics as faithful sons of the great religions. Almost any religious system which fosters unearthly love is potentially a nursery for mystics, and Christianity, Islam, Brahmanism, and Buddhism each receives its most sublime interpretation at their hands. Thus St. Teresa interprets her ecstatic apprehension of the Godhead in strictly Catholic terms, and St. John of the Cross contrives to harmonize his intense transcendentalism with incarnational and sacramental Christianity. Thus Boehm believed to the last that his explorations of eternity were consistent with the teaching of the Lutheran Church. The Sufis were good Mohammedans, Philo and the Kabbalists were Orthodox Jews. Plotinus even adapted, though with what difficulty, the relics of paganism to his doctrine of the real. Attempts, however, to limit mystical truth, the direct apprehension of the divine substance, by the formula of any one religion, as futile as the attempt to identify a precious metal with the dye which converts it into current coin. The dyes which the mystics have used are many. Their peculiarities and excrescences are always interesting and sometimes highly significant. Some give a far sharper, more coherent impression than others. But the god from which this diverse coinage is struck is always the same precious metal always the same beatific vision of a goodness, truth, and beauty, which is one. Hence its substance must always be distinguished from the accidents under which we perceive it, for this substance has an absolute, and not a denominational, importance. Nevertheless, if we are to understand the language of the mystics, it is evident that we must know a little of accident as well as of substance, that is to say, of the principal philosophies or religions which they have used in describing their adventures to the world. This being so, 
before we venture to apply ourselves to the exploration of theology proper, it will be well to consider the two extreme forms under which both mystics and theologians have been accustomed to conceive divine reality. That is to say, the so-called emanation theory and immanence theory of the transcendental world. Emanation and immanence are formidable words, which though perpetually tossed to and fro by amateurs of religious philosophy, have probably, as they stand, little actuality for practical modern men. They are, however, root ideas for the maker of mystical diagrams, and his best systems are but attempts towards their reconciliation. Since the aim of every mystic is union with God, it is obvious that the vital question in his philosophy must be the place which this God, the absolute of his quest, occupies in the scheme. Briefly, he has been conceived, or it were better to say presented, by the great mystics under two apparently contradictory modes. 1. The opinion which is represented in its most extreme form by the theory of emanations declares his utter transcendence. This view appears early in the history of Greek philosophy. It is developed by Dionysius, by the Kabbalists, by Dante, and is implied in the language of Roman Merswin, St. John of the Cross, and many other Christian ecstatics. The solar system is an almost perfect symbol of this concept of reality, which finds at once its most rigid and most beautiful expression in Dante's Paradiso. The absolute Godhead is conceived as removed by a vast distance from the material world of sense. The last or lowest of that system of dependent worlds or states which, generated by or emanating from the unity or central sun, become less in spirituality and splendor, greater in multiplicity, the further they recede from their source. That source, the great countenance of the Godhead, can never, say the Kabbalists, be discerned by man. It is the absolute of the Neoplatonists, the unplumbed abyss of later mysticism. The cloud of unknowing wraps it from our sight. Only by its emanations or manifested attributes can we attain knowledge of it. By the outflow of these same manifested attributes and powers the created universe exists, depending in the last resort on the Latin's deitas, who is therefore conceived as external to the world which he illuminates and vivifies. St. Thomas Aquinas virtually accepts the doctrine of emanations when he writes, As all the perfections of creatures descend in order from God, who is the height of perfection, man should begin from the lower creatures and ascend by degrees, and so advance to the knowledge of God. And because in that roof and crown of all things, God, we find the most perfect unity, and everything is stronger and more excellent the more thoroughly it is one. It follows that diversity and variety increase in things, the further they are removed from him, who is the first principle of all. Suso, whose mystical system, like that of most Dominicans, is entirely consistent with Thomist philosophy, is really glossing Aquinas when he writes, The supreme and superessential spirit has ennobled man by illuminating him with a ray from the eternal Godhead. Hence from out the great ring which represents the eternal Godhead there flow forth little rings, which may be taken to signify the high nobility of natural creatures. Obviously, if this theory of the Absolute be accepted, the path of the soul's ascent to union with the divine 
must be literally a transcendence, a journey upward and outward, through a long series of intermediate states or worlds, till, having traversed the thirty-two paths of the tree of life, she at last arrives, in Kabbalistic language, at the crown, fruit of knowledge of God, the abyss or divine dark of the Dionysian school, the Neoplatonic one. Such a series of worlds is symbolized by the ten heavens of Dante, the hierarchies of Dionysius, the tree of life or Sephiroth of the Kabbalah, and receives its countersign in the inward experience, in the long journey of the self through purgation and illumination to union. We ascend, says St. Augustine, thy ways that be in our heart, and sing a song of degrees. We glow inwardly with thy fire, with thy good fire, and we go, because we go upwards to the peace of Jerusalem. This theory postulates, under normal and non-mystical conditions, the complete separation of the human and the divine, the temporal and the eternal worlds. Never forget, says St. John of the Cross, that God is inaccessible. Ask not, therefore, how far your powers may comprehend him, your feeling penetrate him. Fear thus to content yourself with too little, and deprive your soul of the agility which it needs in order to mount up to him. The language of pilgrimage, of exile, comes naturally to the mystic who apprehends reality under these terms. To him the mystical adventure is essentially a going forth from his normal self and from his normal universe. Like the psalmist, in his heart he hath disposed to ascend by steps in this veil of tears from the less to the more divine. He and with him the cosmos. For to mystical philosophy, the soul of the individual subject is the microcosm of the soul of the world, has got to retrace the long road to the perfection from which it originally came forth. As the fish in Roman Merswin's vision of nine rocks must struggle upwards from pool to pool until they reach their origin. Such a way of conceiving reality accords with the type of mind which William James called the sick soul. It is the mood of the penitent, of the utter humility which, appalled by the sharp contrast between itself and the perfect which it contemplates, can only cry out of the depths. It comes naturally to the temperament which leans to pessimism, which sees a great gulf fixed between itself and its desire, and is above all things sensitive to the elements of evil and imperfection in its own character and in the normal experience of man. Permitting these elements to dominate its field of consciousness, wholly ignoring the divine aspect of the world of becoming, such a temperament constructs from its perceptions and prejudices the concept of a material world and a normal self which are very far from God. 2. Imminence. At the opposite pole from this way of sketching reality is the extreme theory of imminence, which plays so large a part in modern theology. To the holders of this theory, who commonly belong to James's healthy-minded or optimistic class, the quest of the absolute is no long journey, but a realization of something which is implicit in the self and in the universe, an opening of the eyes of the soul upon the reality in which it is bathed. For them, earth is literally crammed with heaven. Thou wert I, but dark was my heart. I knew not the secret transcendent, says Tewakul Beg, a Muslim mystic of the seventeenth century. 
This is always the cry of the temperament which leans to a theology of imminence, once its eyes are opened on the light. God, says Plotinus, is not external to any one, but is present with all things, though they are ignorant that he is so. In other and older words, the spirit of God is within you. The absolute whom all seek does not hold himself aloof from an imperfect material universe, but dwells within the flux of things, stands, as it were, at the very threshold of consciousness, and knocks awaiting the self's slow discovery of her treasures. He is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, is the pure doctrine of imminence a doctrine whose teachers are drawn from amongst the souls which react more easily to the touch of the divine than to the sense of alienation and of sin, and are naturally inclined to love rather than to awe. Unless safeguarded by limiting dogmas, the theory of imminence, taken alone, is notoriously apt to degenerate into pantheism and into those extravagant perversions of the doctrine of deification in which the mystic holds his transfigured self to be identical with the indwelling God. It is the philosophical basis of that practice of introversion, the turning inward of the soul's faculties in contemplation, which has been the method of the great practical mystics of all creeds. That God, since he is in all, in a sense is all, may most easily be found within ourselves, is the doctrine of these adventurers who, denying or ignoring the existence of those intervening worlds or planes between the material world and the absolute, which are postulated by the theory of emanations, claim with Wisbroek that, by a simple introspection in fruit of love, they meet God without intermediary. They hear the Father of Light saying eternally, without intermediary or interruption, in the most secret part of the spirit, the one unique and abysmal word. This discovery of a divine essence or substance, dwelling, as Wisborough says, at the apex of man's soul, is that fundamental experience, found in some form or degree in all genuine mystical religion, which provides the basis of the New Testament doctrine of the indwelling spirit. It is, variously interpreted, the spark of the soul of Eckhart, the ground of Tola, the inward light of the Quakers, the divine principle of some modern transcendentalists, the fount and source of all true life. At this point, logical exposition fails mystic and theologian alike. A tangle of metaphors takes its place. We are face to face with the wonder of wonders, that most real yet most mysterious of all the experiences of religion. The union of human and divine in a nameless something which is great enough to be God, small enough to be me. In the struggle to describe this experience, the spark of the soul, the point of juncture, is at one moment presented to us as the divine to which the self attains, at another, as that transcendental aspect of the self which is in contact with God. On either hypothesis, it is here that the mystic encounters absolute being. Here is his guarantee of God's immediate presence in the human heart, and, if in the human heart, than in that universe of which man's soul resumes in miniature the essential characteristics. According to the doctrine of imminence, creation, the universe, could we see it as it is, would be perceived as the self-development, the self-revelation of this indwelling deity. 
The world is not projected from the absolute, but immersed in God. I understood, says Saint Teresa, how our Lord was in all things, and how he was in the soul, and the illustration of a sponge filled with water was suggested to me. The world process, then, is the slow coming to fruition of that divine spark which is latent alike in the cosmos and in man. If, says Bohem, thou conceivest a small minute circle, as small as a grain of mustard seed, yet the heart of God is holy and perfectly therein. And if thou art born in God, then there is in thyself, in the circle of thy life, the whole heart of God undivided. The idea of imminence has seldom been more beautifully expressed. It is worth noticing that both the theological doctrines of reality, which have been acceptable to the mystics, implicitly declare, as science does, that the universe is not static, but dynamic, a world of becoming. According to the doctrine of imminence, this universe is free, self-creative. The divine action floods it. No part is more removed from the Godhead than any other part. God, says Eckhart, is nearer to me than I am to myself. He is just as near to wood and stone, but they do not know it. These two apparently contradictory explanations of the invisible have both been held, and that in their extreme form, by the mystics, who have found in both adequate and indeed necessary diagrams by which to suggest something of their rich experience of reality. Some of the least lettered and most inspired amongst them, for instance, St. Catherine of Siena, Julian of Norwich, and some of the most learned, as Dionysius the Areopagite and Meister Eckhart, have actually used in their rhapsodies language appropriate to both the theories of emanation and of imminence. It would seem, then, that both these theories convey a certain truth, and that it is the business of a sound mystical philosophy to reconcile them. It is too often forgotten by quarrelsome partisans of a concrete turn of mind that at best all these transcendental theories are only symbols, methods, diagrams, feebly attempting the representation of an experience which in its fullness is always the same, and of which the dominant characteristic is ineffability. Hence they insist with tiresome monotony that Dionysius must be wrong if Tola be right, that it is absurd to call yourself the friend of God if unknowableness be that God's first attribute, that Plato's perfect beauty and St. Catherine of Siena's acceptor of sacrifices cannot be the same, that the courteous and dear worthy Lord who said to Lady Julian, My darling, I am glad that thou art come to me, in all thy woe I have ever been with thee, rules out the formless and impersonal one of Plotinus, the triple circle of Suso and Dante. Finally, that if God be truly imminent in the material world, it is either sin or folly to refuse that world in order that we may find him. And if introversion be right, a plan of the universe which postulates intervening planes between absolute being and the phenomenal world must be wrong. Now as regards the mystics, of whom we hold both these doctrines, these ways of seeing truth, for what else is a doctrine but that? It is well to remind ourselves that their teaching about the relation of the absolute to the finite, of God to the phenomenal world, 
must be founded in the first instance on what they know by experience of the relation between that absolute and the individual self. This experience is the valid part of mysticism, the thing which gives to it its unique importance amongst systems of thought, the only source of its knowledge. Everything else is really guessing aided by analogy. When therefore the mystic, applying to the universe what he knows to be true in respect of his own soul, describes divine perfection as very far removed from the material world, yet linked with it by a graduated series of emanations, states or qualities which have each of them something of the godlike, though they be not God, he is trying to describe the necessary life process which he has himself passed through in the course of his purgation and spiritual ascent from the state of the natural man to that other state of harmony with the spiritual universe, sometimes called deification, in which he is able to contemplate and unite with the divine. We have in the Divina Commedia a classic example of such a twofold vision of the inner and the outer worlds. For Dante's journey up and out to the Empyrean heaven is really an inward alchemy, an ordering and transmuting of his nature, a purging of his spiritual sight till, transcending all derived beatitude, it can look for an instant on the being of God. The mystic assumes, because he tends to assume an orderly basis for things, that there is a relation, an analogy, between this microcosm of man's self and the macrocosm of the world-self. Hence his experience, the geography of the individual quest, appears to him good evidence of the geography of the invisible, since he must transcend his natural life in order to attain consciousness of God. He conceives of God as essentially transcendent to the natural world. His description of that geography, however, of his path in a land where there is no time and space, no inner and no outer, up or down, will be conditioned by his temperament, by his powers of observation, by the metaphor which comes most readily to his hand, above all by his theological education. The so-called journey itself is a psychological and spiritual experience, the purging and preparation of the self, its movement to higher levels of consciousness, its unification with that more spiritual but normally unconscious self which is in touch with the transcendental order, and its gradual or abrupt entrance into union with the real. Sometimes it seems to the self that this performance is a retreat inwards to that ground of the soul, where, as St. Teresa says, His Majesty awaits us. Sometimes a going forth from the conditioned to the unconditioned, the supernatural flight of Plotinus and Dionysius the Areopagite. Both are but images under which the self conceives the process of attaining conscious union with that God who is at once imminent and transcendent in relation to the soul which shares his life. He has got to find God. Sometimes his temperament causes him to lay most stress on the length of the search. Sometimes the abrupt rapture which brings it to a close makes him forget that preliminary pilgrimage in which the soul is not outward bound, but rather on a journey to its centre. The habitations of the interior castle through which St. Teresa leads us to that hidden chamber, which is the sanctuary of the indwelling God. The hierarchies of Dionysius, ascending from the selfless service of the angels, past the seraph's burning love, 
to the God enthroned above time and space. The mystical paths of the Kabbalistic tree of life, which lead from the material world of Malkuth, through the universes of action and thought, by mercy, justice, and beauty, to the supernal crown. All these are different ways of describing the same pilgrimage. As every one is born a disciple of either Plato or Aristotle, so every soul leans to one of these two ways of apprehending reality. The artist, the poet, every one who looks with awe and rapture on created things, acknowledges in this act the imminent God. The ascetic, and that intellectual ascetic, the metaphysician, turning from the created, denying the senses in order to find afar off the uncreated, unconditioned source, is really, though often he knows it not, obeying that psychological law which produced the doctrine of emanations. A good map, then, a good mystical philosophy, will leave room for both these ways of interpreting our experience. It will mark the routes by which many different temperaments claim to have found their way to the same end. It will acknowledge both the aspects under which the Patra Splendida, truth, has appeared to its lovers, the aspects which have called forth the theories of emanation and immanence, and are enshrined in the Greek and Latin names of God. Deus, whose root means day, shining, the transcendent light, and Theos, whose true meaning is supreme desire or prayer, the inward love, do not contradict, but complete each other. They form, when taken together, an almost perfect definition of that Godhead which is the object of the mystic's desire, the divine love which, imminent in the soul, spurs on that soul to union with the transcendent and absolute light, at once the source, the goal, the life of created things. The true mystic, the person with a genius for God, hardly needs a map himself. He steers a compass course across the vast and stormy sea of the divine. It is characteristic of his intellectual humility, however, that he is commonly willing to use the map of the community in which he finds himself, when it comes to showing other people the route which he has pursued. Sometimes these maps have been adequate. More, they have elucidated the obscure wanderings of the explorer, helped him, given him landmarks, worked out right. Time after time he puts his finger on some spot, some great hill of vision, some city of the soul, and says with conviction, Here have I been. At other times, the maps have embarrassed him, have refused to fit in with his description. Then he has tried, as Bohem did, and after him, Blake, to make new ones. Such maps are often wild in drawing, because good draftsmanship does not necessarily go with a talent for exploration. Departing from the usual convention, they are hard, sometimes impossible, to understand. As a result, the orthodox have been forced to regard their makers as madmen or heretics, when they were really only practical men struggling to disclose great matters by imperfect means. Without prejudice to individual beliefs, and without offering an opinion as to the exclusive truth of any one religious system or revelation, for here we are concerned neither with the controversy nor with apologetics, we are bound to allow as a historical fact that mysticism, so far, has found its best map in Christianity. Christian philosophy, 
especially that Neoplatonic theology which, taking up and harmonizing all that was best in the spiritual intuitions of Greece, India, and Egypt, was developed by the great doctors of the early and medieval church, supports and elucidates the revelations of the individual mystic as no other system of thought has been able to do. We owe to the great fathers of the first five centuries, to Clement of Alexandria and Iranius, Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, above all to Dionysius the Areopagite, the great Christian contemporary of Proclus, the preservation of that mighty system of scaffolding which enabled the Catholic mystics to build up the towers and bulwarks of the city of God. The peculiar virtue of this Christian philosophy, that which marks its superiority to the more coldly self-consistent systems of Greece, is the fact that it restates the truths of metaphysics in terms of personality, thus offering a third term, a living mediator, between the unknowable God, the unconditioned absolute, and the conditioned self. This was the priceless gift which the wise men received in return for their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This solves the puzzle which all explorers of the supersensible have sooner or later to face. Como si convene limago al cerquio. The reconciliation of the infinite and intimate, both known and felt, but neither understood. Such a third term, such a stepping stone, was essential if mysticism were ever to attain that active union, that fullness of life which is its object, and developed from a blind and egoistic rapture into fruitful and self-forgetting love. Where non-Christian mystics, as a rule, have made a forced choice between the two great dogmatic expressions of their experience, a. The long pilgrimage towards a transcendent and unconditioned absolute. b the discovery of that absolute in the ground or spiritual principle of the self. It has been possible to Christianity, by means of her central doctrine of the Trinity, to find room for both of them, and to exhibit them as that which they are in fact, the complementary parts of the whole. Even Dionysius, the godfather of the emanation doctrine, combines with his scheme of descending hierarchies the dogma of an indwelling God, and no writer is more constantly quoted by Meister Eckhart, who is generally considered to have preached imminence in its most extreme and pantheistic form. Further, the Christian atmosphere is the one in which the individual mystic has most often been able to develop his genius in a sane and fruitful way, and an overwhelming majority of the great European contemplators have been Christians of a strong, impassioned, and personal type. This alone would justify us in regarding it as embodying, at any rate in the West, the substance of the true tradition, providing the path of least resistance through which that tradition flows. The very heretics of Christianity have often owed their attraction almost wholly to the mystical element in their teachings. The Gnostics, the Fraticelli, the Brethren of the Free Spirit, the Quietists, the Quakers, are instances of this. In others, it was to an excessive reliance on reason when dealing with the supra-rational and a corresponding absence of trust in mystical intuition that heresy was due. Arius and Pelagius are heretics of this type. The greatest mystics, however, have not been heretics, but Catholic saints. In Christianity, the natural mysticism, which, like natural religion, is latent in humanity, 
and at a certain point of development breaks out in every race, came to itself, and attributing for the first time true and distinct personality to its object, brought into focus the confused and unconditioned God which Neoplatonism had constructed from the abstract concepts of philosophy blended with the intuitions of Indian ecstatics, and made the basis of its meditations on the real. It is a truism that the chief claim of Christian philosophy on our respect does not lie in its exclusiveness, but in its Catholicity, in the fact that it finds truth in a hundred different systems, accepts and elucidates Greek, Jewish, and Indian thought, fuses them in a coherent theology, and says to speculative thinkers of every time and place, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. The voice of that truth which spoke once for all on Calvary, and there declared the ground plan of the universe, was heard more or less perfectly by all the great seers, the intuitive leaders of men, the possessors of genius for the real. There are few of the Christian names of God which were not known to the teachers of antiquity. To the Egyptians he was the saviour, to the Platonists the good, beautiful and true, to the Stoics the father and companion, the very words of the fourth gospel are anticipated by Cleanthes. Heraclitus knew the energizing fire of which St. Bonaventura and Mechthir of Magdeburg speak. Countless mystics, from St. Augustine to St. John of the Cross, echo again and again the language of Plotinus. It is true that the differentia which mark off Christianity from all other religions are strange and poignant, but these very differentia make of it the most perfect of settings for the mystic life. Its note of close intimacy, of direct and personal contact with the spiritual reality, given here and now, its astonishing combination of splendor and simplicity, of the sacramental and transcendent, all these things minister to the needs of the mystical type. Hence the Christian system, or some colorable imitation of it, has been found essential by almost all the great mystics of the West. They adopt its nomenclature, explain their adventures by the help of its creed, identify their absolute with the Christian God. Amongst European mystics, the most usually quoted exception to this rule is Blake, yet it is curious to note that the more inspired his utterance, the more passionately and dogmatically Christian even this hater of the churches becomes. We behold... Where death eternal is put off eternally. O Lamb, assume the dark satanic body in the virgin's womb. O Lamb divine, it cannot thee annoy. O pitying one, thy pity is from the foundation of the world, and thy redemption begins already in eternity. This is the doctrine of the incarnation in a nutshell. Here St. Thomas himself would find little to correct. Of the two following extracts from Jerusalem, the first is but a poet's gloss on the Catholic's cry, O Felix Culpa. The second is an almost perfect epitome of Christian theology and ethics. If I were pure, never could I taste the sweets of the forgiveness of sins. If I were holy, I never could behold the tears of love. O mercy, O divine humanity, O forgiveness, O pity and compassion, if I were pure, I should never have known thee. Wouldst thou love one who never died for thee, 
or ever die for one who had not died for thee. And if God dieth not for man, and giveth not himself eternally for man, man could not exist, for man is love, as God is love. Every kindness to another is a little death in the divine image, nor can man exist but by brotherhood. Whether the dogmas of Christianity be or be not accepted on the scientific and historical plane, then, those dogmas are necessary to an adequate description of mystical experience, at least of the fully developed dynamic mysticism of the West. We must, therefore, be prepared in reading the works of the contemplatives for much strictly denominational language, and shall be wise if we preface the encounter by some consideration of this language, and of its real meaning for those who use and believe it. No one needs, I suppose, to be told that the two chief features of Christian schematic theology are the dogmas of the Trinity and the Incarnation. They correlate and explain each other, forming together for the Christian the final key to the riddle of the world. The history of practical and institutional Christianity is the history of the attempt to exhibit their meaning in space and time. The history of mystical philosophy is the history, still incomplete, of the demonstration of their meaning in eternity. Some form of Trinitarian dogma is found to be essential as a method of describing observed facts, the moment that mysticism begins either a. to analyze its own psychological conditions, or b. to philosophize upon its intuitive experience of God. It must, that is to say, divide the aspects under which it knows the Godhead, if it is to deal with them in a fruitful or comprehensible way. The unconditioned one, which is, for Neoplatonic and Catholic mystic alike, the final object of their quest, cannot of itself satisfy the deepest instincts of humanity, for man is aware that diversity in unity is a necessary condition if perfection of character is to be expressed though the idea of unity alone may serve to define the end, and though the mystics return to it again and again as a relief from that heresy of multiplicity by which they are oppressed, it cannot by itself be adequate to the description of the all. The first question then must be, how many of such aspects are necessary to a satisfactory presentment of the mystic's position? How many faces of reality does he see? We observe that his experience involves at least a twofold apprehension. A. That Holy Spirit within, that divine life by which his own life is transfused and upheld, and of which he becomes increasingly conscious as his education proceeds. B. That transcendent spirit without, the absolute, towards union with which the indwelling and increasingly dominant spirit of love presses the developing soul. In his ecstasy, it seems to the mystic that these two experiences of God become one. But in the attempt to philosophize on his experiences, he is bound to separate them. Over and over again, the mystics and their critics acknowledge, explicitly or implicitly, the necessity of this discrimination for human thought. Thus even the rigid monotheism of Israel and Islam cannot, in the hands of the Kabbalists and the Sufis, get away from an essential dualism in the mystical experience. According to the Zohar, 
God is considered as imminent in all that has been created or emanated, and yet is transcendent to all. So too the Sufis. God, they say, is to be contemplated, A, outwardly in the imperfect beauties of the earth, B, inwardly by meditation. Further, since he is one and in all things, to conceive oneself as separate from God is an error. Yet only when one sees oneself as separate from God can one reach out to God. Thus Delacroix, speaking purely as a psychologist and denying to the mystical revelation which he attributes exclusively to the normal content of the subliminal mind, any transcendental value, writes with entire approval of St. Teresa that she set up externally to herself the definite God of the Bible, at the same time as she set up within her soul the confused God of the pseudo-Areopagite, the one of Neoplatonism. The first is her guarantee of the orthodoxy of the second, and prevents her from losing herself in an indistinction which is non-Christian. The confused God within is highly dangerous. St. Teresa knew how to avoid this peril, and, served by her rich subconscious life, by the exaltation of her mental images, by her faculty of self-division on the one hand, on the other by her rare powers of unification, she realized simultaneously a double state in which the two gods, i.e. the two ways of apprehending God, transcendence and imminence, were guarantees of each other, mutually consolidating and enriching one another. Such is the intellectual vision of the Trinity in the seventh habitation. It is probable that St. Teresa, confronted by this astonishing analysis, would have objected that her trinity, unlike that of her eulogist, consisted of three and not two persons. His language concerning confused interior and orthodox exterior gods would certainly have appeared to her delicate and honest mind both clumsy and untrue. Nor could she have allowed that the unconditioned one of the Neoplatonists was an adequate description of the strictly personal divine majesty, whom she found enthroned in the inmost sanctuary of the castle of the soul. What St. Teresa really did was to actualize in her own experience, apprehend in the ground of her soul, by means of her extraordinarily developed transcendental perceptions, the three distinct and personal aspects of the Godhead, which are acknowledged by the Christian religion. End of first half of part one, chapter five.